Our reading this morning comes from James 2, 8 through 13, which is um, in your pew Bible is page 1012, page 1012. Again, that's James 2, 8 through 13. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law, law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we appropriately come now before you to ask for your help, for your mercy, for an outpouring of your Spirit as we sit beneath your Word. We are hungry for words of love and hungry for words of grace, and we pray that even as we have been prone to wonder and prone to leave you even this past week, even this very morning, that you would come and reveal yourself to be a God of grace and mercy, um, that you would meet us where we are, uh, that you would meet us in our brokenness, that you would meet us in our anger, in our despair, in our bitterness, in our frustrations, in our doubts, in our happiness, and our joy. Father, meet us where we are this morning, we pray, and remind us that we are all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so we all need the same thing. We need to be reminded that because of Jesus' person and work, it can be true of us that at the same time we are far more broken than we could ever imagine that we are also far more loved and secure and accepted and received and forgiven than we could have ever dreamed possible. So lift our eyes, we pray, to see the author and perfecter of our faith, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children ages 3 to 1st grade, you're dismissed for Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, someone will take you to your class. We're in a series um, this fall through the book of James, James' letter, and, um, and as we have been working our way through James' letter, we come to this passage in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13 that Mark read for us earlier, where James really wants us to think about the law. Uh, it's really hard to miss uh, because the word law shows up in every verse from verse 8 to verse 12. And the question for us is, how are we to relate to God's law? 
one of my favorite scenes in movies comes from the movie The Shawshank Redemption, and Morgan Freeman plays this character named Red, who has lived 40 years of his life in prison and behind bars. And when you first meet Red in this movie, he's in the prison yard, and he's totally in his element there. I mean, he's comfortable, he's relaxed, he's hanging out with his friends. Um, he has he has learned how to adjust his life to this system, and he's really in his element. Uh, he runs the show. He's learned how to survive. If you're in prison and you need something, you go to Red, because Red knows how to make things happen. Well, near the end of the movie, Red was released from incarceration after those 40 years, and I think it's genius how the director of this movie um, portrays the difficulty of Red's being released back into society and how painful that process was because he gets this job bagging groceries and he's constantly getting on his manager's last nerve because he keeps asking for permission to do these tiny small things like permission to go to the bathroom. Uh, but that's that's the life he has known for the past 40 years. He's had to ask for permission for everything. And so there's this scene where he's in the grocery store, and there's all this noise, and there's all this activity around him, and people are moving around him and bumping into him and all, all those kind of things, and he, he just panics. He panics, and he, he runs into, uh, into the bathroom trying to calm himself down. He shuts the door, and he's in the bathroom. He's trying to calm himself down, but the bathroom itself is too big. And so he goes into this this stall, and he shuts the door, and you see him put out his hands to feel the walls beside him. You know, for most of us, to get in tight places like that, it makes us feel uncomfortable, right? But for him, it made him feel very comfortable because it felt familiar to him. It felt familiar like reaching out and feeling the walls of his cell in prison. And what's going on in this scene is that the director is showing you that though this character, Red, is really and truly free, he's struggling to relate to the world as a free man. Now listen, James, when he's writing his letter, he's not writing to tell you how to be free. One of the assumptions that James makes in this letter is that his readers have already found real and true freedom in Jesus. But he also assumed that there would be a great struggle in the life of believers to learn how, now as men and women set free, to learn how they are to now relate to God's law. I mean, how do you view and think about God's law now? Set free in Jesus, how does God's law now shape and form you in all of your relationships? How do you live out your freedom in Jesus as you relate to God's law? And so here are the three things that I think James hits for us in these verses where he's trying to teach and the things he's trying to teach and challenge us with this morning. First, He talks to us about the loving focus of God's royal law. And then second, he talks about the unity of the whole law. And then finally, he talks about the demands 
of the law of liberty. Um, and I'll repeat those as we go. Um, but first, the loving focus of God's royal law. There's enough in these first two verses, verses 8 through 9, for for whole sermon, uh, but I'm going to try to keep us on the main point here. Um, here's the, the royal law, James tells us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul wrote in Galatians that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's this law of very special and unique importance to God the King. It's His royal law, James says. And it's a summary, of course, of a lot of laws. But all those laws are focused on one thing, James tells us, and Paul tells us, and Jesus told us. They are focused on loving your neighbor. And this idea, I think, of a law of love, of legislating love, it, it, initially it feels uncomfortable for us. And I think it's because we've come to think of love as primarily a feeling. When the Bible thinks of love, it thinks of love as primarily and first an action, not a feeling. And here's how I want to try to explain this to you. I, I've been lucky enough in the ministry to officiate a number of weddings. Uh, some of you in this room, I, I officiated your wedding, and there are these occasions where I'll be getting ready to officiate a wedding, and the bride and groom will come into my office, and they'll, they'll tell me, well, we, we want to write our own vows, and, and I'm very nice about it. Um, if they really want to say something to each other during the service, we'll make room for that somehow, but I always tell them, but if I'm doing your wedding, we're doing these vows, these traditional vows. We're doing them. And here's why. Whenever a couple writes their own vows, um, you know, they are they're generally pretty cheesy. Um, they're emotional and sappy and all that. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't mind that at all. Um, my problem is that they're always in the present tense. Right, so they stand up to say to one another in front of everybody, you're so beautiful. I love you so much. You're the greatest. You make me so happy. All this kind of stuff. But real vows, real vows are always in the future tense. Right, not I love you, but I promise to love you. I will love you. Right, I promise to be your loving and faithful husband or wife. And then you get those wild extremes listed in the vows, right? Uh, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. And here, here's what they're saying. They are saying in front of God and their friends and their family, they are saying no matter what happens in life, whether life is falling apart for us or whether we're doing great, I will love you. They're saying no matter what happens to you, no matter how you change, whether you're sick, whether you get in an accident and are in a wheelchair for the rest of your life or you're running triathlons for the rest of your life, I will love you. Now listen to this. They're saying in these vows, no matter how I feel, 
in joy and in sorrow, whether I'm happy, whether I'm hurt, whether I'm depressed, no matter what my feelings are, I promise to love you. I will love you. And you can only, you can only make promises like that if love is an action first and a feeling second. But I'm willing to bet that if you use your imagination, you, you will understand that to have the security of unconditional, prom, uh, of unconditional promise of loving action, it gives the feelings of love the, the real space to grow and flourish and run wild in a relationship. See, James was saying the essence of the royal law is that whenever there is a need in your neighbor's life, there's an obligation for you to act to meet that need, an obligation for you to act towards your neighbor's needs with the same intensity, speed, energy, urgency, and practicality that you would move to meet any need in your life. You're to to act towards them to meet their needs. You shall love your neighbors, James says, as yourself. Take lo- and let's take loving action like that, and you will create the space for the feelings of love to follow. Because the royal law tells you how to love, and love fulfills the royal law. Now, I want to make some pretty specific application to us this morning, but I, I do want you to notice this first. In verses 8 through 9, James was clearly saying that if you find yourself in life showing favoritism or partiality to some people or to some groups of people, treating and acting to meet their needs over and against the needs of others, then you have violated the king's royal law. You have trampled it under your feet and last week, we, we talked about this quite a bit, and a lot of the ways that we size people up uh, by their outward appearances, and we play favorites, and we show partiality. Because we do this when the wealthy are given priority over the poor, or when the successful are given priority over the unsuccessful, the attractive over the unattractive, the educated over the uneducated, the cool over the uncool, and on and on we could go. And we addressed a lot of that last week, but this morning I want to address another way that we play favorites and show partiality. Every year uh, during the summer, I go for one week and I participate in our denomination's annual meetings. And this past summer, our denomination passed a resolution, and that resolution was publicly confessing our denomination's failures to love our African-American brothers and sisters well. And I've been in this denomination for 15 years, and a a lot of it was news to me. I had no idea about some of these kept secrets in our denomination. Um, The failure to especially love our black neighbors uh, during the period that led up to the uh, civil rights movement and afterwards. And very, sometimes it was proactively churches and members of churches being against caring for our African-American neighbors. 
But very often, and maybe more simply, it was, simp- it was simply by never lifting a finger to help and never acting, never being a voice for those neighbors of ours in moving to act upon their needs. You know, and I left that, that meeting this past summer with this, I guess this just weird mixture of emotions and feelings. Because on the one hand, just deeply ashamed and embarrassed for our denomination. But on the other hand, I would say I've been, been to a lot of these meetings, and I've never been more proud of our denomination than I was this past summer. Because what they're saying is, they're saying, we're going to purposefully name our sin and name our brokenness and admit to our failures and to repent and to ask forgiveness and to seek actively to repair broken relationships and bring healing, to realize that wherever there's a need, there is an obligation for us to act, to meet the needs of our neighbors. Now, if you're a regular attender here at Grace Community Church, you've heard me say this dozens and dozens of times, that we're a church that is committed to serving and loving our community. We want to have such a presence in this community that if we were to disappear tomorrow, that our community would be poorer for it, that we would be missed, that our presence would be missed. Now, what do you think, what do you think will happen in this church if we take up the loving focus of the royal law without partiality? In ways like serving Cordova Elementary School, which we do, which is a school made up primarily of African-American children, two-thirds of which come from homes that fall below the poverty line. If we take loving action like this, the feelings of love will follow, yes, and not all at once, but certainly and steadily this church will begin to look more and more like our community. You know, I understand that the gospel is not racial reconciliation. The gospel is an announcement that the King of Kings came into this world, and He came into this world to live and die, to redeem sinful, His sinful broken creation. The gospel isn't racial reconciliation, but it certainly carries implications for how we act towards those not like us, our neighbors. If you turn on the news you will see that our world, our country, is hungry for an answer to racism and bigotry and peace and reconciliation and healing. And it's the church, even this church, living out the loving focus of God's royal law that really can offer an answer of real hope for the world. Let's move on second to talk about the unity of the whole law. Verse 10 James wrote, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And James was saying, break one law and you've broken all of it. You've broken the whole law. He's saying there's an indivisible unity of the whole law. Now, think about it like this. James was saying that God's law isn't so much like a heap of stones, 
but it's more like a sheet of glass. If God's law was like a heap of stones, then you could walk over to this heap of stones and you could take a stone away, but you'd still be left with a heap of stones intact. But if you threw a stone through a sheet of glass, then the whole sheet of glass is broken, is fragmented. The fissures and the cracks, they spread throughout the entire glass, and that entire sheet of glass is no longer whole. And James is saying the law is like a sheet of glass. To break one law is to break the unity of the whole law. Now, question, why do you think James found it necessary to say this when telling free men and women how to relate to the law? And I think it's because James was thinking along these lines as he was writing this letter. He was thinking like this, you know how we have a tendency to play favorites with people? We also have a tendency to play favorites with God's law. We have a tendency to play a game of cut, a, a game of cut and paste when it comes to God's law. I like what the Bible says about forgiveness, but I cannot accept what it says about sexuality. Or maybe I like what the Bible says about sexuality, but that stuff about costly love for a people not like me that's going too far. That's too much for me to handle. And I think a big reason we do this is because we tend to relate to God's law as an arbitrary abstract code of ethics or conduct, a checklist, a to-do list. We look at God's law like it's a heap of stones. But James wants us to see that God's law is not like that at all. He wants us to see that God's law always, always comes in the context of relationship. This is why James wrote in verse 11, for he who said, and you can read the rest of the verse, because he's drawing our attention not just to the law, but to the lawgiver, right? He wants you to see that God's law is never an abstract to-do list for you. It always comes in the context of relationships because God's law shapes and creates the terms for how we relate to Him. Now, if that sounds strange to you, um, I'll suggest that you probably just haven't been paying attention to your own life um, because law shapes and creates the terms for all of your relationships in life. There are terms of agreement between husband and wife. If you refuse to accept certain boundaries, there cannot be a relationship. If you repeatedly violate your spouse in some way, what happens? The relationship suffers, and it eventually is broken and eventually dies. There's a relationship of parents to children and children to parents, and there are laws, there are expectations, there are terms that shape that relationship both ways. I mean, parents are responsible for caring and uh, feeding and providing for their children, and if you don't do that, someone is going to come and take your children away from you. The relationship will be broken. It, children, right? Uh, it, if children want parents to trust them, they have to tell the truth. And they have to obey, because to not do so isn't just breaking some kind of code of conduct. It's breaking the relationship itself. 
And there are terms spoken or unspoken in all our relationships with our employers or with our employees, with your grocer, with your friends, with your banker, even with your pastor. You keep showing up every Sunday expecting me to have something to say, right? There are expectations. There are terms. Listen, that law forms the terms of all our relationships. It's inescapable. It's woven into the fabric of all, all our lives, into the reality of our lives. Now, I want to ask you a question. What would happen to your relationship with your spouse or your children or your friends or whoever if you said to your spouse or your kids, I've decided not to love you as you are anymore? Right? If you said to your spouse or whoever, I know this or that is important to you, um, but I've decided that those things won't be important to me anymore. And I wish you were someone else entirely. I mean, that's abusive kind of language, right? It would kill the relationship. It would end the relationship. God's law comes in the context of relationships. His whole law is telling you who He is and what He is like. And that's why there's a unity to the whole law, why it's like a sheet of glass and not like a heap of stones. And He's telling you, this is who I am. This is what matters to me. And you say, I'm fine with the sexual ethic, but I don't really care about what you say about my greed or lack of generosity. Or you say, I'm fine with the generosity thing, but it's too much for you to expect truthfulness and integrity from me in my career or whatever. Do you realize what you're really saying when you say things like that or think things like that? You're saying, God, I refuse to love you for who you are. I refuse to love you for who you are. If you're going to learn how to relate to God's law, and more importantly, the lawgiver himself, we have to see the unity of the whole law. Every part matters because it reveals God's will and His person to us. Okay, last thing, the demands of the law of liberty. There's a lot packed in to the last two verses, and I'm not going to be able to get to all of it in detail, but James was saying there in the last two verses, you need to live, you need to speak, and you need to act in light of coming judgment. He's saying, even when you think you're all alone, you are always visible. Your life is always visible, and there is a coming judgment that you will be held accountable for. But what's most fascinating, I think, in verse 12 is that James talks about being judged under or by a law of liberty, judged by a law of freedom. And that's the most curious thing, because As you're thinking through this sermon this morning and this passage this morning, how can laying down my life in costly, sacrificial service to my neighbor's needs be freedom? Or or put it like this, how can being obligated to my neighbor's needs be freedom? And how is it freedom to think that God expects obedience not just to the parts of His law that are easy for me or that are easy for me to understand even, but also to the parts that are hardest to me and hardest for me to understand. Coming under the whole law like that doesn't sound like freedom. And I want to think with you about that a little bit just before we finish. David Foster Wallace, um, 
incredibly gifted author, and in 2005, he was asked to give the commencement address uh, to Kenyon College. And these are the opening, I should make this clear, these are his opening words to that address. This is what he said, how he started. There are these two fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? It's funny. It's a joke, right? (laughs) And then he explained the point of this story. And the point of the story was, this is his words again, is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see or talk about. And it's a genius way for him to start that speech because now everyone was listening, right? What reality is so obvious that I'm not even seeing it maybe or living in it? What was it that David, Wall, David Foster Wallace saw, this obvious reality of life? Here's what he said to this graduating class, getting ready to leave academia and enter into adult life. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he said, an, and then he said an outstand, this is an outstanding reason for worshiping God. And this is his reason. Because anything, you el- anything else you worship will eat you alive. Right, listen to just a little bit more. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he's right, you know. I mean, Bob Dylan sang it years before him. <laughs> you, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. And, of course, the Bible was saying it long before that. You can choose not to worship God, but you can't choose not to worship. Everybody worships, as Wallace said. It's who you are. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that the moment we rejected God, we didn't stop worshiping. We just started worshiping everything else. We exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped the created things rather than the Creator. Everybody worships. You're going to have to serve somebody. Two or three years after David Foster Wallace gave that commencement speech, he committed suicide. He hung himself at his home. Who knows what it was he was serving or worshiping, whether it was power or intellect or popularity, who knows? But whatever it was, his words were prophetic because it was eating him alive and taking his life. Listen to James. There is one law. There's one law 
that is actually a law of liberty for you. Because like the fish swimming in the water, you are made for a law that fits your nature. A fish doesn't know what water is, but as soon as you take the fish out of the water, it starts to die. The moment you step away from God's law, the law of liberty, you begin to die a million deaths. Listen, you hear it all the time in in countless ways. Our culture is hungry for freedom, for true and real liberty. Be true to yourself, the culture shouts at us. But what is your true nature, James would ask. Around every corner, freedom (laughs) seems to be promised to us. If we just get that, if we just arrive there, if we can just be like this, but it only leads to deeper and deeper bondage in our lives. Your freedom depends on discovering how to give expression to your true nature. This is why James called God's law a law of liberty. Its demands are true freedom for you. Now listen, we've, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, I, I know. Let me just briefly end with a note about verse 13 here. James wrote that judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. He's saying, if there isn't the fruit of mercy in your life, if you aren't growing in your life to love those who are not like you and to take action on their needs, if there's no fruit of you doing things like that, no fruit of mercy, then that should tell you something, James is saying. Because the fruit doesn't give life. You can't work your way to life. The fruit doesn't give life, but it tells you that the tree itself is alive. And that's James' question. Are you alive? Are you growing? Are you learning as someone set free in Jesus how to relate to God's law? If you aren't, it could be, it could be that you're feeling very convicted this morning because you don't see this fruit in your life. And then you need to pay special attention to James' final words in verse 13 where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Come to the one who took action, who came to live and die to meet your deepest needs. He was the good neighbor to you. He came to meet your deepest needs, to take action, to meet your need of forgiveness and reconciliation to His Father. Come to the one who kept the whole law for you, to the one who took the curse of the law for you, so that you are now set free in Jesus to obey the law, and not to obey the law to earn God's love, but to obey God's law simply because you love Him for who He is, because He first loved you in His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You that You are a God who has spoken. You're not a God who has left us in the dark, but a God who has given us a light unto our path. And Father, we thank You for this light that leads us to the true light, Jesus, that leads us to the One who came and triumphed over the curse of the law in order that we might be free to keep the law in Him. 
Father, help us learn, help us grow, help us to understand what it is to look out to the world and take action on the needs of our neighbors. Father, help us to see and to repent of the ways we are partial even when it comes to your law. Help us in Jesus to learn how to love you, how to love you as you really are. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.